Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation 14, 1 through 12. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sounds of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000, who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits of God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, following said, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of passions of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have a critical choice to make. One that will change our lives, that will change our society, that will change our future forever. We have a decision to make in a very real sense on which all of human history hangs. And I'm not exaggerating, nor am I talking about Tuesday. <laughs> as important as that decision is, we know that that's coming. And I'm going to talk about that in, in just a minute. It is not nearly as important as the decision before us today, right now. The decision that John puts before us in his apocalypse, which we've been studying now for the past few weeks. Now remember, John was writing to a group of Christians in the first century Roman Empire, and they lived in an increasingly hostile culture uh, that was hostile to their beliefs and their faith. They lived in a political system that was flawed at best, and they lived in a culture that was full of some good things but also full of evil things and unjust laws and depression, unjust economics, division, strife, and violence. And in that particular, in this particular section of, of the Revelation, what is so interesting to me is that John never lays out a handbook on how to live in Rome or how to live in the United States as a believer. He doesn't say, here's how you should vote, here's the politician you should support, or here's how to order a pluralist society where lots of different worldviews uh, work together and get along. Instead, what he does is he looks at the Christian community and he says, repent. Repent. 
That's really the big idea of this whole section that we're going to look at today, repent, which is to turn away from idolatry and evil and sin and to turn toward God in faith and follow him. That's the big idea. As the end draws near, and John sees the end of Rome coming, and he sees the end of human history coming. He sees the final judgment. And he says to both the watching world and the listening church, repent. Repent. We have a choice to make. The Romes of the world, you guys, will come and go. But this choice today is actually forever. So I want to talk about John's choice before us, really in chapter 14 of Revelation. So we see there in that chapter three different choices that all lead to repentance, the kind of repentance that God is asking for. So if you have a Bible handy, turn to to Revelation 14 and let's dive in. If you remember, last week we looked at John's vision of the beasts, uh, the false Christs, the almost Jesuses, and how they wage war on God's people throughout history how they can seem so close to Jesus, so, so like him in some ways, but truly underneath how ugly and evil they are. That was chapters 12 and 13. The beasts marked out their army at the end of those chapters with the number 666, which is a symbolic number meant to communicate ultimate allegiance to the beast and his agenda. Now in chapter 14, John sees the other side of the war. So this is verse 1. Just listen. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. This is a a metaphor for spiritual purity. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So between chapter 13 and 14, you've got these two armies, and it's, it's like in John's vision, they're laid out side by side, One is defined by idolatry and worldly power and violence and evil, and they are marked on their forehead by the number of the beast. The other is defined by purity and absolute devotion to Jesus, even to the point of death, worship, and they are marked by the name of the Father on their forehead. And here are the choices as John presents them. He says, you can either be here or here. And then after he sees all this, uh, three angels appear. One in verse 6, one in verse 8, and one in verse 9. And each has a different message of repentance. To turn to Jesus and away from evil. And we could spend a lot of time on some of the details uh, of this passage, but I want to keep this simple for us today. So what are our three choices as they're presented here in this section? So the first angel gives us our first choice. And essentially, the choice is we must choose to fear God. So listen to verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea 
and the springs of water. So this verse, notice with me, is the first and only time that the noun, that the word gospel in its noun form appears in Revelation. There's one earlier uh, verbal form of the same word in Revelation, but this is the only time the word gospel appears. It's also one of only two times in the entire New Testament where the word gospel appears without the direct article. So notice the angel doesn't say, the angel doesn't proclaim the gospel, but he proclaims a gospel. Now, John doesn't mean here that there are multiple true gospels. That's not what he means. But I think he is hinting here that there are many false gospels under the same name. Promises of eternal security or happiness or bliss and comfort apart from God. But this angel gives an eternal and true gospel that we must choose. And here's what is so interesting to me. Choosing this true gospel, at least here in John, means in part fearing God. That's the direct command of the angel who has an eternal gospel to share. The first thing he says is fear God. Now, fearing God is a very prominent biblical idea. If you were to read the Old Testament, it's all over the place. It's also in the New Testament. It's a multifaceted command. But I think at its heart, if I had to summarize it, is the fear of God is about our awe. And, and Tom actually preached about that a, a little while ago. Fearing God means being awestruck by God more than anyone or anything else in the entire universe. And sometimes, here's what's complicated about this idea. Sometimes that awe is accompanied by feelings like love and happiness and acceptance and a sense of God's presence and protection, and that's good. Other times that awe is accompanied by feelings of smallness and humility and maybe even actual fear and trembling. Now remember with me, when John began this vision, he sees the risen and reigning Jesus in chapter 1 and he falls down as if he were dead. He's so afraid. That's, that's a part of fearing God because when you see him for who he really is, it is awe-inspiring in that sense too. Our choice is to be awestruck, to fear God above all others. This is the command we're given. That's a part actually of our gospel message, to, to be afraid of the right things and to stay afraid of the right things. I know it's a really weird way to put it, but it's true and it's always been true. So think about it, for John's original readers living in Rome, I imagine that Rome looked really scary to them. Rome had no equal in, ancient, in the ancient world for power, for prestige, for wealth, for military might. It would have seemed to them that there was nothing more relevant or awe-inspiring than the power of Rome. But God says, not for my people. That may be true of the world, but not for my people. Because my people know that Rome is a gnat compared to me. So here's where our moment is relevant as well. I don't know about you, but I sense a lot of fear right now. Now, to be fair, there's always fear around an election cycle. But I actually sense more fear now than I have in quite some time. I don't know if, if that's your experience too. There's fear about one candidate winning. There's fear about the other candidate winning. There's fear about what that means for our country and for our future and our economy and our grandchildren. And I sense that fear in myself as well. I believe, though, that part of our real enemy strategy, this is part of the brilliance of John's revelation, the evil one himself, the other army we talked about earlier, our true enemy, 
is not so much uh, interested in making sure this candidate wins and this one loses. I think his real strategy is to make sure that all of our fear and energy and attention and devotion is wrapped up in this election in general. And Satan's primary concern is not which party is in power, as long as he can shift our eyes and ultimate allegiance away from Jesus. That is his ultimate victory. Now, for the watching world, until they repent and hear this message of John's apocalypse, I understand that fear. Because this election and every election is everything. If, if there is no God, we are on our own, and this matters existentially. I understand that fear. But within the Christian community, this is not so. We know who holds the universe in his hands, who, as the angel points out, is the creator of the world and directs its course through history. We know who lived and died and rose again, and he loves us. That is our gospel message. We should be more awestruck by that than by any election or any political moment. So let's order our fears. Let's order our fears. We talk a lot about ordering our loves, but we should also order our fears. Because we cannot say, for example, if we are followers of Jesus, that we love God and fear him above all others, but are more concerned with the election on Tuesday than we are with our election by grace through faith in Christ. We cannot say, the two, we cannot say that. That is a disordered fear. And it is ultimately idolatry. It, it is to actually worship political power over divine providence. We'd rather get our way in this moment than let God have his way throughout history. And we cannot say we love God but fear and hate our brother or sister who checks the other box on their ballot. That is also a disordered fear. And it is disobedience. We're commanded to love one another even when we are difficult to love. I defy you to read the New Testament and find an exemption to the command, love your neighbor, you know, unless you disagree or, or unless it's hard. No, we are commanded to love one another without qualification. Now listen, none of this is to say that there are not real stakes in 2020. There are. I'm not trying to diminish that. And we should care. And, and we'll get to that part later. But the stakes this week are not to be compared with the stakes of the spiritual battle we find ourselves in today and every day as the apocalypse of John reveals to us. Our choice, our real choice, is whom will we fear? So order your fears. Do we fear God and trust that he's in control? Or will we fear Babylon, our own Babylon, and try to bring God's kingdom without God's king? And this gets to our next choice. We must choose to flee Babylon. So listen to the warning of the second angel in verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And again, that language of sexual morality is primarily, I think, about a spiritual idolatry. Now, I want to get a little nuanced here around this, this idea of Babylon, okay? There is a reason that John's vision is not about Rome, per se. It is about Babylon. He points out that Babylon will fall, and we must choose God over Babylon. And remember with me, Babylon is at this point in, in the history of Scripture a major theme throughout the Bible story. It's an image, primarily, of humanity's tendency 
to create systems of power and culture and politics and law and technology that are set up against the rule and reign of God. This all started in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, hint, hint. (laughs) Remember, it was not a sin that humanity cultivated God's good world and made a city. In fact, God commanded Adam and Eve and through them all of humanity to cultivate his good world. The problem was that when they made their city, they rebelled against God and used their power to deify themselves. Remember their mantra in Babylon, let us make our name great. That is the heart of Babylon for the rest of scripture. That theme continues through Egypt and the Exodus all the way to the literal Babylon when Israel is exiled in 586 BC and Jeremiah the prophet warns God's people as they are taken to Babylon to avoid on the one hand the idolatry and evil of Babylon while at the same time seeking the flourishing and the shalom, the peace of Babylon. Listen to Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare, that word is shalom, of the city where I have sent you into exile, declares the Lord. Now this is really subtle, but so important. Okay, Rome like all human civilizations, is full of what we would call common grace. It's full of beauty and art and technology and engineering innovation and people that God loves, all of those good things. But it is also full of Babylon. It is full of greed and idolatry and immorality and evil and murder and violence and all all kinds of bad things. And the first century Christian community is called here to flee the Babylon part while still loving and serving the common good part. And we are called to do the same thing. Our culture, our country is full of good things, God things, things that I believe are destined for the new creation when all of the nations of history pour their wealth and beauty into God's holy city. And we'll talk more about that later in Revelation because that image is from this book. The United States, like Rome, has parts that are destined for redemption and glory, just like every other people and culture throughout time and space. But the United States is also full of Babylon. There is evil in our past and our present. I mean, you can study just the history of our own community here and see evils of racism and genocide and oppression and violence and hatred. You can read headlines today that turn your stomach. Babylon is alive and well here and now, just like it always has been since Genesis 11. So we need to be nuanced here. Christians must have a nuanced perspective on their culture and their country. And I think most Christian conflict is is not necessarily about what we believe, but how we flesh out that nuance. We must, on the one hand, flee Babylon which is destined for judgment and fire, which is kind of that, the, the, the main message of the third angel, while working for the common good of our community. It's both at the same time. And finding that balance is really, really difficult. Some of us probably, what I'm going to call, over-Babylonize and stop being grateful for the amazing gifts that our country and culture afford us and for the common good. And we stop seeing God's beauty in and through people and things around us. There are amazing things about our country and our economy and our innovative power 
and our poverty alleviation, many of which is unprecedented in human history. Let's be grateful for that and continue to serve the common good in those areas. But many of us also under-Babylonize our country. And I think for some Christians, that looks like over-identifying with the United States to the point where we no longer see Babylon there. We don't want to see Babylon there. Some Christians even get defensive whenever a conversation turns to the real Babylons that are present in our culture and in our laws and in our politics. So let's not be afraid of the truth and let's confront evil as the conscience of our society, which is part of the calling of the local church. Because John reminds us here that we are the Lord's army before we are anything else. And that makes us a really unique earthly community. We should actually be known for this delicate nuance that most people can't find without the gospel. So let's be a faithful presence. Tom talked about this a few weeks ago, and I wanted to mention it again. We must be faithful in the sense of our previous point. We must be faithful in the sense that our ultimate allegiance and love and fear all belong to God, even to the point of persecution and death. We must stay faithful to God, even in the midst of terrible suffering. We should be more known for our love of God than any political party or movement. We must be faithful in that sense, but we must also be present. We must flee Babylon, but not by running to the hills or throwing up our hands and saying there's nothing we can do. We should engage. And so a really practical way to do that is to vote. Vote. One of the unique privileges we have as believers in our country is we can make an impact for the common good with our vote. That hasn't been true for most of human history. It's not true for most of the Christian church around the world. So be informed, but don't be afraid. Vote your conscience, but don't vote your allegiance. Prayerfully choose what you think is best for our community and vote. That's part of what it means to be a faithful presence. And by the way, that call and command to be faithful and present is true no matter what happens on Tuesday, that nothing changes. And let me encourage you, too, to vote local. Okay? This is now just Pastor Andrew talking. John doesn't talk about voting here. But we can get so caught up in our national elections sometimes that we fail to pay attention to our civic responsibility and opportunity in our local communities. We actually have way more influence in our local elections and policies than we ever will nationally. And I think it would be really cool if churches and Christians were known for showing up at like town hall meetings and civic meetings and school board meetings, not as meanies and not as whiners, but as servants and informed citizens and peacemakers. I was recently on a phone call with the Johnson County Health Department, and it was a public forum, so don't be too impressed. Uh, but I made sure when they asked for questions to, to say explicitly, how can the church help you right now? Because I want them to know that we are here for them, and we love Johnson County, and we love this community. That's a small thing I can do as a Christian for the common good. It was easy. What about you? Where can you be faithful and present in our city? Where can you work against Babylon and for the common good? And one of the main ways actually we're positioned to do that is through our calling and our vocation. And just so you know, Made to Flourish, our national partner, is hosting an online conference on November 12th called Common Good to talk about just that. How do we serve the common good through our work? So register. Uh, Here's the link. I've got it right on screen here for you. 
hit pause, register now, I think it's going to be fantastic. And it'll really flesh out this point of how do we do this well. Okay, last choice. Let's choose the kingdom of the Lamb. Choose the kingdom of the Lamb. This last angel in verse 9 talks mostly about the coming judgment, and we're going to have a whole sermon on that in the weeks to come. Uh, So get ready for that. But the last line is where I want to focus. This is verse 12. This is John's actual summary of this whole section. He says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God, and their faith in Jesus. Now this last phrase, faith in Jesus, the force of that statement in English, I think, kind of misses the point. It sounds kind of weak to me. Commentators point out that in the Greek literature of the time, if someone were to say, keep faith to you, and again here, faith is the pistis word group in Greek, keep faith is actually maybe better translated to say, keep loyalty even in like a patriotic sense. So like the idea here is be loyal to king and country is what John is saying at the end of this section here. Now, we don't often think of our faith in Jesus that way in the modern West. I think we default to, even without knowing it, that what Jesus really cares about, I know I do this, is is my own personal piety. He wants to make me a good and honest person, which is true. But that Jesus' vision for the world kind of ends at my prayer life. And he doesn't really care about politics and stuff like that. And if he does, he only cares about did I faithfully engage as an individual or not. Now, I don't think any of us would say that out loud. But I do think functionally sometimes that's how we picture Jesus. This statement here, our loyalty to Jesus, faith in him, is a reminder of something that was probably more intuitive to the original reader that we would be defined by our loyalty, our political loyalty to Jesus. And make no mistake, Jesus is not our best friend buddy, okay? He is your friend, but he is a king who promises to bring a government and a politics unlike the world has ever known. And in that sense, his gospel message is a profoundly political message in that he fully intends to take all of creation, everything, every atom, and put it back under his rule and reign. That's a profoundly political statement. It was statements like that that got Christians killed in the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire saw the gospel message for what it was. They're proclaiming another son of God. We have the son of God. So no matter what happens this week or any election week, make no mistake, our hearts and our allegiance and our vision For the universe is about Jesus' kingdom and nothing else. He and he alone deserves our loyalty and our political loyalty. You should see politics through the lens of Jesus' kingdom. We must never see Jesus and his kingdom through the lens of our politics. If we do that, that is not faith in him. That is not loyalty to him as John describes it and understands it here. So even if your candidate wins next week, your hope is not there. And if your candidate loses next week, your joy cannot be taken away. Because there is only one king, and we all long for his return. So be on guard, because over the next several days, the Babylons of our culture will promise you security and peace and comfort, protection, all for the small, small price of your loyalty, your heart. I don't care if you're a Democrat, 
or a Republican. There are elements in our politics that want your worship. Do not give it to them. Instead, follow the Lamb wherever He goes and be an agent for His kingdom and His kingdom alone. Be an ambassador for Him. This is why praying, for example, like the Lord's Prayer is a political act. We pray to our Father and ask that His kingdom, not Trump's kingdom, not Biden's kingdom, but God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Because no politician will give their life for you. No political party can forgive your sins. No candidate, no earthly kingdom can save you from judgment. But our King, the slain Lamb, who is on the throne, remember, left the throne, and shed blood, gave his life so that we could be forgiven, made new, and set free from death and enslavement to sin, not just in some future reality, but today, now. Follow that lamb wherever he goes. He will never betray you. He will never leave you. He will always be with you. He will make everything sad untrue, and he and he alone can do it. So let's respond today by taking communion, which is another political liturgy in the truest sense of those words. Because when we take these elements, we declare our victory now by the blood of the Lamb on our behalf. So wherever you are, gather the elements in your home, and whoever's watching with you, include them too. Take the cup of Jesus' blood and the bread of his broken body and choose Jesus' kingdom again.